Aloha. Welcome to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now we've got a very interesting show today. We're going to be talking about prescription drug abuse and overdose. But before we get into that, there's something else exciting that's happening this Sunday. You know, we like to promote health and wellness, and the 38th annual Hawaii Pacific Health Women's 10K is taking place. I want to talk about that. It's formerly the Straub Women's 10K, my current uh, location of work. And it's a fabulous race that's been run for almost 40 years now and is one of the only women's races here. In fact, I think... Other than the triathlon, I think it's the only women's running race that's held here in Hawaii. And we are lucky enough today to have race director Casey Carlberg, founder of TriFitness Hawaii. And she's here in the studio to tell us a little bit more about why we should get excited about this race and how everybody can play a role. Husbands, significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, kids, everybody. Casey, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for having me, Kathleen. Absolutely. Now, this has been an exciting race, and every year it's really a lot of fun, not just the actual event itself, but the preparation leading up to it, and you do a fabulous job when the race is over giving out the awards. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But if people are interested in participating, what should they do? If you'd like to participate in our event, you could go to the website, hawaiipacifichealth.org, Or if you'd like, you can show up to one of our two packet pickups uh, Friday evening, February 27th at Kahala Mall from 5 to 9 p.m. Or Saturday, February 28th at Pearl Ridge, where we're going to have an exciting fashion show, prizes, giveaways, guests, and all more from 10 to 4 on Saturday. Fantastic. So Friday, Kahala. Saturday, Pearl Ridge. Lots of time to sign up, pick up your packet. Have a great time. Meet some other inspiring women in fitness. What makes you want to be the director for this race each year? I have dedicated my life for the past almost 20 years to women's health and fitness, and it's just really an honor to be a part of this this huge event and to really support women. And I think it's an opportunity for women of all levels to participate in an event as well as the our our really fast athletes who would like to cross the finish line first and compete head-to-head, as well as our family members like mothers and daughters and, and children, you know, participating all together and celebrating their health and fitness. And it's a great way to do it. There are some folks who have done it every year. Yeah, we have a handful of women who are dedicated to this event, and it's really inspiring and uh, an inspiration that we have drawn upon to start to include a keiki race, which will be its first time this year. It's a one-mile keiki event that's going to be starting at 7.30 at the park, so just after the women's start time at 7, and anyone, kids 5 to 10, can join in. So if they have, if moms happen to come, dads are there, the kids want to participate, they actually have an event for them too. Yes, and Girls on the Run is, is a partner that is going to support that event, and they are a small organization that supports girls' fitness in the community. And so they're going to be coming out to help us get that cakey run all started and, and organized. Fantastic. Now, everybody can help. If you happen to want to come to the park on Sunday, you want to see how everything goes, it's really inspiring to be there at the start line, definitely at the finish line. But if you have a significant other who's participating in the race and you want to help out, we could use your help too. 
Absolutely. Volunteers are always needed. And I think that that's a big part of uh, community service that people don't realize is that when you are out there cheering people on or standing at a corner, making sure that the participants are going the way they need to go, that is so important to them as well as the rest of the community that you are there helping and supporting that women's health and fitness as well. Fantastic. Now, there's always a lot of fun at the awards afterwards. Right. You make it a lot of fun. (laughs) Just a little heads up to folks. If any of you have a previous Women's 10K shirt, wear the oldest one you possibly can. I think I've heard you stand up at the bandstand and say, whoever's wearing the oldest 10K shirt, come on up. And there's all these exciting prizes that people that people can win. There's a lot of sponsors, not just Hawaii Pacific Health, but other community sponsors as well, providing prizes, providing excitement, providing something fun for people. You don't have to win the race to win a prize. No, we like to make it a celebration. And part of that celebration is that women, when women cross the finish line, they receive a rose as well as a gift bag and lots of great food. And then, as you said, the prizes at the end, we give age group awards for various uh, categories as well as Kalana and his team, uh, entertainment team, are going to be up there to give away all of our other prizes and ask the audience to participate in order to get one. Fantastic. So pretty much if you have any interest in fitness and you want to still be in this race, it's definitely possible. The Hawaii Pacific Health Women's 10K, there's a website you can go to, hawaiipacifichealth.org. You can also call. I've got a phone number listed here, 535-7674. Again, 535-7674 or Kahala Mall Friday, Pearl Ridge Saturday. Absolutely. Fantastic. Excellent job running this race every year. Fantastic work just to bring this to the community. You also have the triathlon that occurs in September, the only other all-women's event here in the islands. Yes, the Nawahini Festival, formerly the Nawahini Sprint Triathlon, and that's September 13th. And that's also a very exciting event. And when I always feel that when we can bring women together, it shows the rest of the community that we can do something. And it offers a lot of support as well for the families to get involved. Great work. Hopefully you'll be the race director forever. Ah, I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, telling us about such an inspiring event. We'll see you out there Sunday. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for joining us. Now, we're going to be talking today about a topic that it's a difficult topic for a lot of folks, but it's just as important. You know, fitness is one way that we can stay healthy. Another way to stay healthy is actually to make sure that we take our medications appropriately. And so, you know, in 2014... Prescription drug overdose deaths in Hawaii topped auto accidents as the leading cause of death here in the islands. And although the U.S. only makes up about 4% of the world's population, we use 80% of all the pain medicine. Medicine has taught us that pain should be treated, but when is the treatment more toxic than the pain itself? What causes opioid addiction, and how does it get so get out of control that it results in an overdose? And how does this really affect everybody, including our health. Well, we have Claire Santos here. She's a registered nurse, patient advocate, and healthcare communicator who got the shock of her life when her sister passed away recently from addiction to pain medicine. And she's here in the studio to tell us her story and give us some warnings about what it means to be on addictive pain medicine. Now, as always, you can join our discussion today, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 
3689, if you or a loved one has ever suffered with taking pain medicine to the point of addiction or overdose, or how this has affected your family, we'd like to hear from you. But first, Claire, welcome to the show. We want to hear about your story and tell us, because I've known you for years and this kind of came out of left field for you. This really just threw you for a loop when you heard about it. Aloha, Dr. Kozak. Yes, thank you for having me on again. And learning of my sister's death so abruptly without warning did throw me for a loop, but it turned out um, she had been receiving prescriptions every 30 days for Oxycontin and Percocet for a long, long time, and we just had no idea she had an addiction problem until she overdosed and died. And when was this? December 16th. She died December 12th. So this was just, you know, a few months ago. Yeah. So I absolutely understand that you're still in the grieving process. And, you know, we always think we know our siblings really well. And we think, oh, I could totally picture him doing that, or I could never picture them doing that. How did you guys find out? And what did you find in the house that helped you to realize how bad this problem really was? My nephews were going through her things, and apparently she was a very good record keeper. My sister was quite organized, and I got a phone call from my nephew that said, there are all these prescription receipts for, you know, 30 tablets of this and 30 tablets of that, 60 tablets, um, increasing doses. But every month, her prescriptions were refilled by her physician. This is in another state, by the way. So she's on the mainland. Yeah. And you get a phone call that she's not doing well. Did you get the call when she was in the hospital? Did you get the call when she had passed away? What exactly happened? Uh, The initial call I got on a few days before, and we didn't quite know what was happening. Um, But before I could even talk to the physician or the social worker, she just went completely downhill and, and died. So she was in a hospital? Yeah. And hospitalized, found by her children? By the nurse. By the nurse. So she's found by a nurse, taken to the hospital, and then was a nurse visiting her in the home? Oh, I'm sorry. She was found by the police. Apparently she was sitting outside completely confused and disoriented. So she was found by local police, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know what was wrong with her. They took her to the hospital. So she's in the hospital, and that's when all this comes about. Correct. So you hear from your nephews, and they're going through her things. And they're finding all these bottles. What was going through your head when you hear about 30 pills here, 30 pills there? Clearly a lot of pills that were either purchased and taken or empty bottles in the house. What was the first thing that you thought of? What went wrong with her health care provider? What went wrong with that communication that allowed this to continue for so long to the point of killing her? And what do you, in retrospect, I mean, three months of retrospect, what do you think it was? I I honestly feel that sometimes physicians or whoever's writing the prescription, nowadays we have nurse practitioners as well, um, sometimes take the path of least resistance, don't want to be confrontational with the patient, don't want to get in an argument Sometimes it's lack of education to the provider. For the provider, they they just don't know what alternatives to suggest for the person or what treatment plans to devise. Now, do you think your sister had a bit of responsibility here, too? Well, we're moving to the patient-centered medical home model, and the patient is the decision-maker. 
and it should always be that way. This shouldn't be a new concept, but in my opinion, the patient should be working with their primary provider and doing assessments and arriving at treatment plans together and, and working through that. And I feel like in her case, the ball was dropped. Now, do you think when you look at this whole situation, and I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it was the same doctor who was giving her these prescriptions? Yes. Okay. Should prescriptions for strong narcotic pain medications be given by pain management specialists? I believe there should be a pain management team. It's a multidisciplinary team because you still need to treat the source of the pain and perhaps emotional components of the pain. So there's physical therapy, psychotherapy, pain management specialty for specific medications and scheduled dosages, etc. There's a team that should be involved in pain management. And who should be on that team? We have the patient. Their primary provider should be in the loop, absolutely. The pain management specialist, any physical therapist, psychotherapist. I understand we're having good results with meditation and um, mental health exercises. Um, Kind of after the assessment is done by the primary provider and the pain management specialist, deciding which disciplines would be appropriate to bring into the mix. Sure, if it's an orthopedic issue and it's for, you know, ruptured discs or bad arthritis or something, you'd want to have somebody specializing in that particular area on the team. So the team could be different for different people. It should be an individualized approach. We're leaning more and more towards algorithms and saying a person should only have three to five days worth of opioids after a procedure, et cetera. Each person is not the same. This needs to be individualized so that there, if there is a problem, people who know this patient are working with them on this. So if we take a look at the basic situation, there's your sister getting a bunch of pain medicine, highly addictive pain medicine. She goes back to get refills every month from the same provider who gives her refills And this is her primary care provider. This was not a pain management specialist, I'm assuming. That's right. And how long was this going on? It looks like it was going on and on and off for years. So depending on the situation, it was several years. Yeah. Maybe off for a little while, then back on. Yeah, she was off for a little while. But uh, my sister was a, a waitress. And they have myriad physical ailments. That's a heavy duty physical labor job. So she had she was a chronic pain patient, justifi- justifiably so, and just mismanaged. Now let's take a look at what we do here in Hawaii because I think it it bears regardless of where this took place it bears it bears the discussion that we really need to have about what components we have here. In October, the use of hydrocodone was changed. It's now considered a Schedule Two medication along the same lines as oxycodone or oxycontin. And part of the reason that the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, and the Hawaii State DEA decided to do that was because they found that Vicodin was the most abused prescription pain medicine out there, even more so than the oxycodone and the oxycontin. And so it sort of lent itself to a bigger level of of administrative oversight because of the fact that Previous to October 6th, which is when this took place of last year, 
you could call your doctor and say, you know, my back went out and I need 30 Vicodin, and they could call in a prescription to a pharmacy or fax it in, and you didn't have to come in. And you, I mean, you should, of course, always come in, but you didn't have to physically come in to pick up that prescription. There was another modality how that could be transferred to the pharmacy. And as of October 6th, that ended. Only one month at most supply, no refills. You know, you physically have to bring in the prescription. You can't fax it. You can't call it in, et cetera. Well, you have to also be evaluated by the doctor. You have to come in for an office visit to get the prescription. No, you don't. Now, here's the dilemma. Huh. Exactly. Technically, if you want to get a refill on a medicine, there is currently no requirement that you have to physically come in. You can have somebody else come pick up your prescription. Now, personally, I don't do it. I think it's a bad idea. But if you were to go ahead and say, I need my my Percocet, and I'm going to send my wife to go pick it up, and she's going to pick up the prescription at the pharmacy for me, and then she's going to actually pick up the prescription at the doctor's office and take it to the pharmacy and bring me home my pills, that is still allowed. Still happens. Not saying it should, but reality is it does. In Hawaii, perhaps. Uh, the In state Hawaii. where my sister is, she had to be seen every yeah. 30 days by the physician before getting a prescription. Well, depending on what you're on. So your oxycodone and your oxycontin, really good pain management doctors will require visits, at least as far as I'm aware of, because now after October 6th, there's a lot more restrictions in these medications. There were previous restrictions to the oxycodone, oxycontin. Now hydrocodone is included in that. And those restrictions are expanded to mean no refills are going to be allowable. So you're right. She would have had to come in every month to get these. And that's a good reminder to the provider and also to the patient. Hey, you know what? You're getting another refill. Let's count up how many of these you've had. Let's take a look at, well, We'll take a quick break, and then I want to talk about how the Affordable Care Act has actually changed some of these issues and has, has required certain components to be part of this, this team that we talk about. In the perfect world, we're going to talk about who's on the pain management team, and we can use your sister as an example, or we can use someone else and, and talk a little bit about what went well on that team and what in this unfortunate case did not and how things could have been assessed differently because it's a very important issue and given the fact that more people in 2014 died of narcotic drug overdoses than anything else in Hawaii this clearly requires a deeper level of conversation so I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak we'll be right back after this quick break I'm here with nurse educator registered nurse and healthcare communicator Claire Santos and when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what this means for you the next time you want to get a pain prescription from your doctor. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Kids inside the juvenile justice system don't traditionally get much education, but that is changing thanks to the digital classroom. They have an ability to amass a, a huge number of credits while they're inside a correctional facility, and they can do so much while they're there. I'm Kai Rizdal. Next time on Marketplace Corrections Facilities that are teaching kids how to code. It's all from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, right after The Body Show. On the next morning edition, a political standoff in Venezuela and an artistic standoff from the 1930s when a mural by Mexican artist Diego Rivera was destroyed at Rockefeller Center. 
was terrible moment. He is destroyed, completely destroyed. How the daughters of Diego Rivera and Nelson Rockefeller are now working together to preserve Mexican art on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Claire Santos. She is a patient advocate, registered nurse, and healthcare communicator. And today we're talking about a situation very near and dear to her heart. This past December, her sister passed away of narcotic overdose, and it was prescribed by her doctor. Now, we do know that illegal drugs can cause overdoses, and that's definitely true. But today we're talking about those that someone like myself might prescribe. And how does that lead to serious harm in many cases? And how do we figure out a way to avoid harm but still provide the benefit to those who need it. Now, we're talking today about common medicines that you might have heard about, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin. These are things that are out there, the ingredients being hydrocodone, oxycodone, and these are medicines that are usually reserved for very select indications. But these days we're finding that they have a very high addictive potential, and we've known about that potential for a while but since we're seeing a rise in the number of prescription drug overdoses, it becomes even more of a responsibility of all of us, healthcare providers, patients, family members, all of us, to do the best that we can to make sure that ourselves and our loved ones are not suffering from pain medicine addiction, and in this case, suffering in silence. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about pain management care teams, that it doesn't necessarily have to be just some separate doctor who's a pain management doctor, but it should incorporate several members of the team. And those members include the patient's regular provider, their pain management specialist, physical therapy, maybe psychiatry, which may be an essential part of it, and other alternative therapies like chiropractic, meditation, acupuncture, yoga, variety of different physical type of therapies that might help. Now, we were also talking, and I wanted to mention, that the Affordable Care Act has passed, and that has resulted in the requirement of another member of the team, maybe not initially, but hopefully not too late. And that's the mandatory coverage for addiction treatment. Tell me a little bit about what you know about that, Claire. It is it is stipulated in the Affordable Care Act that... Um, Addiction treatment is a covered benefit, and I do encourage people who don't have health insurance now and are eligible for the Hawaii Health Connector to go ahead and get that insurance. If if we're talking about, say, one in seven people in Hawaii will have an addiction problem for, for pain medications after surgery or injury, someone listening to this show today has that problem. And if you need to have health insurance to get the treatment you need, please go and get it. What happens if you get addicted to pain medicine and your doctors no longer give it to you? One of the big concerns is that some folks, not everybody, go to the illegal drug market. And that's what happens if, if the addiction is that strong. And these types of addictions 
do not do well if you try to cold turkey and do it alone. Um, people go to the illegal drug market and pay a heavy price per pill from the drug diverters and smugglers. Or they get hooked on something else. Or they get hooked on something else. They're moving on to cheaper heroin is what's happening in the whole country right now. And then there's a whole nother level. So yeah. now you have not only I'm addicted to pain medicine, but now I'm doing something illegal to get it. Right. And I'm taking something that's illegal. And it adds a whole nother level of complexity. Now, before we talk any more about the results of opioid addiction, I want to talk a little bit to Terry calling in from downtown. Terry, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, how you doing? I got a couple questions. One is we're on the verge of legalizing uh, medical marijuana pharmacies. Is that considered a Schedule One or Two drug, or what is it considered as if it's going to be legal? Good question, Terry. Right now, it's still Schedule One. Um, I do think that for those locations where it has been legalized, Alaska being the latest state to legalize not just medical marijuana but actual recreational marijuana, um, you know, they're going to have to change the scheduling of that because a Schedule One narcotic, as it is considered, or a Schedule One drug. Um, is currently still illegal. So the scheduling is going to have to change as we look at developing dispensaries for the medical marijuana people who need that. And, you know, it's certainly something where for some folks that is the only particular medication that works for them for a variety of different illnesses. And we've had legalized medical marijuana, but we just never had a place to get it, which was sort of this catch-22. If you could grow your own plant, you could have medical marijuana, but if you couldn't, and and you wanted to get it from somewhere, we just didn't have a dispensary. So the legislature is looking at that and appropriately determining how we're going to implement and integrate uh, marijuana pharmacies or marijuana dispensaries into our current uh, protocol here in the islands. But to do so, I think the scheduling is going to have to change. The second question I have is, um, okay, so you get medical marijuana. What if you had a federal job where you're mandated to do drug testing or you're on parole and you're mandated to do drug testing? Yeah, you have a prescription and you can legally buy it and you turn it positive. What happens to you? Good question. Claire? I believe in most states that's still under consideration by the, the legal system. Yeah. I, I don't think an actual decision's been made yet. That's tough because you know what, Terry? You could still, if you have a federal job and your federal job requires that you are not using it, but you live in a state where you have a medical condition where it's been authorized, you're stuck in that gray zone. You're in the, it's not black or white. If you're caught with it and you have a prescription, you could easily say, hey, listen, it's been approved by my doctor and it's been recommended and I don't use it during work time, then you may be able to negotiate some sort of uh, a way to continue to keep your employment. But you're right. If it's a federal job, you're in that gray zone, Terry. And, you know, it's it's even if you have a state job, there's still some issues with that. So we've got a long way to go to really completely evaluate and appropriately implement medical marijuana laws. Well, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones. I broke five ribs and I was on oxycodone or hydrocodone. I don't recall which. I couldn't wait to get off the stuff. Well, I'm not quite sure how that makes you fortunate, Terry, but, you know, breaking ribs and, and taking all those medicines. But you are fortunate in the thought that you got off of them and you found some other way to treat your symptoms. So for that, I agree with you. And I'm curious, Terry, tell me, when you say I couldn't stand the stuff, I had to get off of it, why? What sort of symptoms were you having when you took it? Uh, just nausea, uh, upset stomach. And, and on the other hand, I enjoyed drinking beer. and I was actually... 
when I first started on it, I was drinking beer, and my friend told me he lost a handful of friends who were drinking alcohol and on that medication. And so I stopped drinking while I was on it, but it just, you know, the taste of a beer after work every now and then tastes good. I you liked your beer to, more. I had to withdraw from that in order to, you know, not have a problem. Well, you brought up a really good point, Terry, and I want to thank you for that. Claire, he heard from his friends that he shouldn't drink alcohol and take strong pain medicine like oxycodone. Who should be telling people not to drink alcohol and take strong pain medicines or drive or make major life decisions? Shouldn't his doctor have told him that? Absolutely. And this is a point I'm trying to make because we have things like the Affordable Care Act giving you addiction treatment, but hey, what can we do at the front end of this, at the very beginning of the person's pain experience to prevent getting to that point? So there should be an educational meeting with either the the provider and the patient or the nurse, whoever, whoever on the team is the educator or the main educator, to discuss if you're going to take your pain pill today, you can't drive. You're the same as a drunk driver. Don't mix drugs and alcohol. Um, don't make major life decisions or sign contracts when you're under the influence. Patient education is key, and I don't for a minute feel that when a pharmacy hands me a, a leaflet or a pamphlet about my drug, I don't feel that's sufficient because no one has tested that with the patient to see if they've comprehended it. How is that health literacy level of that document, and did the patient understand what was said or what, what was written? We don't have any feedback when we just hand a piece of paper with words on it. Very true. And you put a label on a bottle, and that still doesn't necessarily stop people from taking it and saying, well, yeah, but I don't feel like it impairs me, so I can still drive or I can still you know, go to work or something along those lines. Strong pain medicine, you really have to be careful because you could be as dangerous on the road as drinking a few beers. That's very yeah. true. DUI isn't just about alcohol. It's about any substance that... That's important, driving under the influence. Well, and good that Terry brought that up because that was one of your main points is, you know, who should educate the person receiving the pain medicine about that medicine? And and, and I absolutely 100% agree with you. The person who's prescribing it is obligated to say, here's what you really shouldn't do when you're on this. It's very important to make sure that they know that. And that doesn't mean they're going to listen. Okay, we all know that. I can say a whole bunch of stuff, and that doesn't mean people are listening um, in my office and on the radio. So either way, but certainly documenting that you've mentioned that to someone that they've clearly expressed their understanding, that's a step in the right direction. Hopefully we'll take the step, if not already, in that right direction. All right, we've got Johnny on the phone from Lahaina. Johnny, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. What can we do for you? Uh, Let's see. I guess I'm kind of in the boat that you're talking about. Uh, about three or four months ago, I was in a pretty uh, unfortunate accident where I uh, broke my leg pretty bad. And uh, I was prescribed uh, 30 milligrams of Vicodin three times a day. And I've still been taking that, but essentially I am, don't have any more pain. And I want to stop taking that, but every time that I do, I end up having withdrawals like flu-like symptoms really bad for uh, several days. Uh, so I went to a doctor, uh, a local general practitioner, and he said that uh, essentially the only thing I can do is just kind of suffer through it, and there's nothing that he can recommend except for uh, stomach medicine and stuff like that to kind of help. I was wondering if you had any advice. Johnny, what a great 
What a great caller. I mean, truthfully, I really appreciate you calling us because yes. you are that person. You are that we're yes. talking about. Now, I'm curious, how long ago was the accident? Uh, this accident was in uh, about November. So you're within six months of an acute injury, given some medicine, taking it like prescribed. I'm curious, did you know that you shouldn't drive or drink alcohol? Did anybody tell you that? Not that you're doing that, but just as a question for our own sake. Did anybody uh, tell you? Yeah, yeah I, I have heard that, uh, you know, it does make you drowsy and make okay. you uh, less conscious or, sure. or whatever. But uh, I know that it can also hurt your liver and alcohol can also hurt that too. Okay, so you know, so somebody told you about those things, which is good. That's a, that's a good place to start. Now, Claire, let's talk about it. Johnny, Vicodin, three times a day, no longer has pain but has withdrawal. And still right. taking, still prescribed the medicine. So what's wrong with this picture? Are you still getting it, Johnny, or is your doctor still giving you the Vicodin? Uh, my doctor is no longer uh, giving me the Vicodin. Uh, yeah. Okay, where are you still on it? Uh, I am. Do I want to know how you let, got it? Let's see. Uh, I'm on the remainder of my prescription, Okay. And uh, I don't know how to explain this next part, but uh, uh, there is other sources, I guess, that you can get somewhere, things like that. Right. I'm not going to ask you to incriminate yourself. You're on air. You could have told me your name is Johnny, and it could be it could be Jane. It's okay. We're not asking you for, for your source. But certainly, have you had to go to that source yet? I mean, have you, ref- have you used all of your... All of your prescribed pain medicine, and you've gotten it from some extra source, or you haven't done that yet? I have done that, yes. Okay. All right. So this is a classic example, Claire, of somebody who, you know, they've been given medicine, and we talked about it before we were on air, and and we talked about what do you do when somebody says, I want more, and you say you can't have it, and yet they're having withdrawal symptoms. What should someone like Johnny do? I mean, I'd love to say, hey, we've got a pain management specialist right here to fix it. But that's one of the biggest problems that I notice in my own practice is I've got to go to outside sources from where I work to find somebody who specializes in pain management. And that's on Oahu. And he's calling from Lahaina, which means he's calling from Maui. So it's even harder for our for our folks in the neighbor islands. Aloha, Johnny. And I'm sorry you're in this position. Um it is recommended not more than three to five days of narcotic pain medicine after an injury. And that, again, is individualized and depends on your situation. But it sounds like you've gotten yourself into a problem. Well, you haven't done it all on your own. There's someone prescribing it. And at this point, your best option really is to talk with your physician and say you can't even skip a dose. You're having symptoms if you try to stop taking this. Trying to go the old cold turkey way is not good with narcotics. It's not successful. There are programs, I don't know on Maui, I'm sorry to say, but there are programs um, with, there's a drug called Suboxone and... um, There's medications you can take in addition, Johnny. The other thing that I would suggest is when you talk with your doctor, you may need to discuss with them seeing somebody in the mental health profession like psychiatry who can also help you to work on lowering your dose. So you don't want to go cold turkey. And if you don't have access to some of the other medicines that help people to get off of narcotics that are not narcotic, just saying go cold turkey over the weekend, get really sick, and then call me Monday and let's see how you did, 
probably not going to be the most effective way to handle this. One of the things you could consider, particularly since you do have some limited resources on the neighbor island, is that you may want to talk with your doctor about establishing a tapering dose so that you set four weeks as your goal. In four weeks, I'm going to be off of this. Therefore, if in four weeks I'm on zero pills a day, then in three weeks, maybe I would be on one a day. In two weeks, two weeks, maybe I'd be on two a day. And the next week, I'm going to take three a day, but try and spread out and maybe alternate with three, two, three, two. Now, there's not really a science to it as far as the tapering, but you may need to discuss with your doctor, how can I get off of this safely? Because if you don't have access to some of those other types of medicines, and I wouldn't even know how to prescribe subaxone and all these other types of medicines, I do work with some of my some of my folks on trying to slowly get off of it over the course of several weeks because you you don't want to be on it all the time as you've clearly illustrated you don't right. want to need it so much that you have to go to less than legal sources but you're you're out there screaming saying help me i need your help and you need to find somebody who's going to work with you in a very short interval to try and reduce that dependency on the medicine in the safest way possible for you right i so I might have missed this, but uh, basically, I'm no longer seeing the doctor who did prescribe me the medicine uh, since I have moved away from that area. And uh, I went to a doctor to talk to him about this problem, and he basically said, just, you know, do what you can. I can't really help you. Uh, Would you recommend me trying to taper down on a schedule using what I have left? Would that be the best solution? Nope. You got to find a doc that you can work with where you live that'll help you with this because there may come a point that you need some extra help or you run out of pills and you're thinking of going to an illegal source so that you can work on your taper. You might need to have some other blood testing and monitoring done. So, you know, I, I, I would highly encourage you to find a doctor local to where you are that will help you with this. I don't want you to, to go down this path by yourself and if you found somebody who said, I really can't help you, they may have some folks that they know of in your local community that can really help you to walk this road and, and partner with you on it. Um, you know, in desperate situations, sure, you could try it by yourself, but then you run this huge risk of what do you do if it's not working out the way you want it to and there's no other provider on the island who's there to help you. So do your best to find somebody who can help you with this. And it may mean that temporarily you see this other specialty doctor and you see them for a while and then go back to your designated primary provider. Or maybe you even have to change your providers. I mean, that's definitely a possibility, unfortunately. But you got to find somebody you can work with who will work with you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your help. Johnny, right, Johnny one more thing is that you might yeah. look, in the, look in the phone book or ask around if there's an ad- addiction treatment center around and they can help you with a referral and a physician. That's perhaps. true. They might know the name, even if you're not going to an inpatient referral. The other thing, Johnny, is you could always take a look and see what's available on Oahu. You don't have to come here, but they may have some neighbor island people that they work with who might be able to help you. So, Claire, that's a really good point. Take a look and see who else might be on your island, but call Oahu so you get some referral and get some names. That That's definitely a possibility. Queens, Queens does have a treatment um, center for addictions, and we, we also have Kualoha Olamau here on Oahu. Um, so there are some resources. If you were to put in a pain medicine center or addiction center, Hawaii, you might get some resources that you may otherwise not have thought of, Johnny, and this could definitely 
this could definitely make all the difference. So I do wish you the best of luck in trying to figure this out. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Nurse Claire Santos. She is a patient advocate. She's a healthcare communicator, and she also is a family member who lost somebody to pain medicine addiction. That's our topic for today. If you've got a family member or concern or you yourself are on some pain medicine and don't quite know how to get off of it, we may want to have a discussion, and you can call us at 941-3689. Toll free from our friends over there on the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm Ryan Lozawa. And I'm Bert Lum. Next time on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about an innovative robotics program that enables teams to build an underwater vehicle. What does it take to build a remotely operated vehicle that combines naval architecture and marine engineering? That's next time on Bite Marks Cafe, Wednesday at 5. On the next Humankind, the stressed-out environment for nurses who spend more time with patients than doctors and are the front line of our health care system. Often working long, breathless hours, we'll hear nurses describe the challenging conditions and powerful self-care practices that help them cope. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Claire Santos. She is a registered nurse, patient advocate, healthcare communicator, and we were both just smiling when we heard about humankind tonight looking at all the stress that nurses have because... You're right. They spend more time with patients often than physicians do. And how can they self-care? How can they take care of themselves so that they can be good healers for patients? And I think that's definitely something we're both going to listen to. All right. But we'll talk about that in a minute because you mentioned something really important earlier about how emotional pain can lead to physical pain. Before we do that, I want to talk with with Sachi from Kona. Sachi, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks for being patient. I hope you can understand me. I've got laryngitis a little bit. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've had yeah. that myself. Okay, what can we do for you? Yeah. My um, ex-husband was very depressed, and he was taking a lot of medication illegally. And um, the thing is, is that I think we forget, you know, people, we can't just cookie-cutter people. Everybody is so different, and I hear that... Um, and in the next 20 years, depression is going to be like 90% of the public is going to be depressed. That's what I've been, I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course. But I what hope so, Sachi, 90%. Was, okay. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like a huge, like, I don't know, 60% or something. Um, my husband had a head injury, and um, when they did the MRI, they found a brain tumor in his pineal gland, and he was on heavy medications because of the headaches after the head injury. And he had to have the medicine to keep his anxiety level down. And at one point, he just ran out of medicine and had a heart attack because his anxiety level was so high. And, um, you know, the thing about 
medicine and people and, and depression, I think, is a huge thing that we don't really look at. I mean, the, some people are just so sensitive and they just can't deal with the way the world is. It's, some people are, just have such a hard time. If they're alone, they don't have friends. I mean, they just turn to drugs because they're, in his case, he was really um, damaged. Well, Sachi, you brought up two. You brought up two really good points, and the first one was something that we just mentioned during the break. Cancer is a whole different story. Now, you mentioned he had a brain tumor on the pineal gland, which probably may or may not have been malignant, but isn't the usual type we think of with cancer of the brain. That being said, cancer patients are kind of out of our discussion today, and what I mean by that is not that we don't care, but rather there are very unique special circumstances where they need to use certain medications with chronic pain and cancer pain, and they are not the types of folks who should change their medicine, get off of their medicine, or do anything other than what their cancer doctor says. So when you mentioned brain tumor, the first thing that came to mind was we've got to mention cancer patients have to be treated differently because they have a whole different circumstance. But the other thing you mentioned is very important, and we just alluded to this, Claire, and we said emotional pain can result in physical pain. Now, the appropriate use of pain medicine is for physical pain. And some people who have other symptoms like anxiety or depression need to be treated with medications that treat those conditions. But you had a very interesting experience, Claire. Share that with us when you realized emotional pain and physical pain can actually come together. I did notice as I was first grieving over my sister that I was having a lot of body aches and old injuries were flaring up. The pain was increasing and I really didn't know why I hadn't done anything special. I didn't go surfing or on some big hike. Um, and I sat down and talked with, with a health, another healthcare professional and she said, your body treats emotional pain the same as physical pain and you have those symptoms and, and those same pain hormones are, are being um, sent out and it's truly a physical pain. And that was kind of eye-opening for you. Absolutely. I had no idea. And in terms of my background, I've been a burn care nurse and an ER nurse and a workers' comp case manager. So I've dealt with patients with all types of pain, and that never occurred to me to to put those two together. And when you think about it, a person who has been injured is now not only in pain, but they're not functioning in their normal life. They can't perhaps go to work. They're not seeing friends. They can't do things they used to do. Depression may follow. The emotional component of the pain may follow just by nature of the injury and the life changes, loss of income, um, and that's all treatable. And should be treatable with this team approach. You know, we talked about our dream team. If we were to talk about the dream team for pain management includes a pain specialist, a primary care provider, a psychiatrist, because that's an important emotional component that we can't ignore and also physical therapists and various other physical modalities. But, you know, the reason why psychiatrists are on this team is because there may be some other issues. Dealing with losing your ability to, to do an activity that you enjoy. Dealing with loss of functioning, loss of job, loss of friends. These things affect all of us emotionally. We can't ignore that. Because if we only treat the pain symptom physically, and we don't get to the underlying cause, we're not going to fix it. Absolutely. All right. We've got Lawrence on the phone from Kohala. Lawrence, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you? 
Uh, there was a gentleman that came on and he was talking about, uh, you know, how you get pretty much addicted to to the pain medication. I'm um, I was on it for three more than three and a half years. Um, oxycodone, hydrocodone. I started at hydrocodone, ended up in oxycodone, and went right up to oxycodone. And um, at one point, it was so bad, I can understand. You get so sick um, that a lot of times, even with the pain that I had, which was my, I, I injured my knee years ago, and I needed to get surgery on it. And um, because of my job, I couldn't go ahead and do the surgery because if I don't, my job was if I don't work, I don't get paid. And so I had to go on. And I the only way was to take, you know, the, the pain medication. And at the end of the at the end of the day, it, it was to the point where I got addicted. And this is another thing: as you get pain medication. A lot of these uh, places that will give you that, that supposedly supply um, pain medication or for that matter, any kind of medication. When it came to pain medication, they were even telling you that they wouldn't give it to you, even if you had a doctor's uh, prescription for it. And I was lucky enough that I had a great, great pain medication doctor here. Um, that uh, um, got me on something called the boxin. We were just talking about that, Lawrence. Yeah, and it, it, it worked. It worked unbelievable. Um, and about the, um, I uh, had uh, diagnosed with um, fibromyalgia, and I had this major pain in my body. At point in time, I thought I was uh, passed, you know, because of this pain all in my chest, my legs, my arms, I thought I had cancer. But the truth of the matter is, um, I think the mind, the whole mind thing of um, get, being on that being on that drug was the worst drug I've ever taken in my life. And I, I swear, I, I would never want to take that drug again. Um, but I do feel for a lot of those guys out there that you're talking to and I'm listening to this driving and going like, wow, my God, you know, there's, I thought I was the only one, but there is a great team management doctor here um, on the big island. And I don't know if I should mention his name, but you can look in the book for him on the pain management and he's really great. Um, and he really helped me a lot. And today I'm uh, free of all all the pain medications. Fantastic, Lawrence. That's excellent. I'm glad that you had such a good experience because you're right. Very often people wind up staying on these medicines for years and they don't find that addiction specialist who can help them get off of it. And there's the other component, Claire, that I wouldn't have thought of. He can't treat the physical. He couldn't. Poor Lawrence couldn't treat his physical problem because his job required that he go to work. And so if working was his way to get insurance and working was his way to get income, he couldn't just not work or he wouldn't have insurance. 
and how could he fix his knee problem? So again, it's it's so multifaceted that I think we often as healthcare providers don't understand the complexity of what makes people make certain decisions. So thank you for sharing your story with Lawrence and thanks for sharing your experience with Suboxone because that's an important thing to know. We've got a couple more callers in the line I want to get to. We've got Don from Eva. Don, welcome to the Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you? Okay, I'm a care home. I have a care home, a foster home. I'm okay. a provider. Okay, I've had this one client for almost 11 years already, and for the last eight years, I, as I can remember, um, they have him on oxycodone, 20 milligram twice a day, and he's been on it for like eight years. So where do you draw the line as to addiction, as to where... You know, where does it stop? I mean, why haven't they tried tapering him off of it or giving him less uh, dosage? Because at one time I had this one lady, and she was taking um, four, five milligram oxycodone um, every day, you know. So so where, where does this, you draw the line, that addiction as to where is this pain medication helping them or hurting them? Because, you know, um, it's like from, from the oxycodone, if, if they take them off of that, the next thing they're looking for is like heroin. You so, know, and that's why we do have a large number of heroin users in the United States. A lot of them start off on oxycodone and oxycontin. So where do you draw the line as to addiction? Good question, Don. I have a couple of questions, and then, Claire, I want you to weigh in on this. The first thing I have to ask you is, the person that you're talking about on this medicine, how old are they? They're 58. 58. And the yeah. reason why they're on the medicine is why? The diagnosis? He had, he had an accident. He's partially paralyzed. But then again, he can do a lot on his own. And I think by giving him this medication, it stops him okay. from wanting to do things, you know? Well, I, I absolutely hear you. And the reason I asked about his age is because, you know, the only people I have in my practice for whom I will prescribe medication regularly without uh, having them see a pain specialist are people who are like 85, and older. Uh-huh. You know, if they have a diagnosis where they really have some serious problem, compression fractures, pinched nerves, bad arthritis, whatever it might be, when they get to be that age, I will often treat them. And my way to know if I need to change the dose of the medicine for the elderly will be daytime, they're too sleepy, they don't get up, they don't, they don't have any interaction with other folks, when it starts to impair their level of functioning. Uh-huh. And then we'll talk, talk about uh, tapering. But if they're stable and they're not increasing their dose and and they're doing well and they're older and their primary diagnosis is not something I can fix, I will be their prescribing doctor for pain medicine. But I don't do that for the majority of my patients because there's a specialty, a pain management specialty that, that I think I truly respect as far as their abilities to handle this. And I will often send anybody who who has any diagnosis and they're younger to them to work on getting off of the medicine. But you brought up a very good point and and you brought up the fact that you think, hey, maybe he could do more if he wasn't under the influence of these medicines. And exactly. So that's an interesting question. Where do you draw the line with addiction? I draw it based on increasing doses, meaning accelerating doses. You have to take it twice a day. Now it's three times. Now it's four times. An inability to have relief with a stable dose and and symptoms that don't seem to be pain-related that are being treated. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we heard from a caller earlier, I'm really, you know, my ex-husband was really anxious, so he took his pain pills, and the anxiety is not the way that you're supposed uh-huh. to use pain medicine. 
Claire, I'm curious. What is your thought? Here's Don. He's got this 58-year-old accident victim in a foster care situation who's on a stable dose of medicine for several years, but he's young. And he, Don's saying he could do more. How would you approach this situation? My, my first question, Don, is do you accompany this person to their doctor visits? Uh, we accompany him, but most of the time he goes on his own. Now, does he have a visiting nurse or social worker who comes to check on they have, him? We have a case manager and a nurse that comes and sees him like every month, once a month. Okay, these two people are your lifeline to change. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I haven't underscored enough today the, the value of nurses in patient education. Um, mm-hmm. I would bring this up to the case manager, to the nurse, um, explain that he could do more, that he's too fuzzy from the medication, and maybe they should take another look at changing it. Mm-hmm. Make, your, make your suggestions. The nurse will do a professional assessment and decide to relay the information to the doctor um, to take a look at the situation. But use your lifelines there to contact people who can help um, a better assessment happen and perhaps a change in the drug use. There's been no change, you know, I mean, and, and he goes to the same doctor and, and they write a, a report every time and, and that is submitted to the case manager and the nurse and they go over it. And, and it's like, you know, I mean, um, from what I look, what I can see, the medication is, is more of a hurt to him than a help to him, you know, because it's like, it's like, my God, you know, if, if they didn't have him on this, you know, oxycodone, Maybe he could be doing a little more for himself, you know? Some great points that you brought up, Don. Absolutely excellent points. And part of that is the fact that you're able to make this assessment of him and his abilities and what you feel he can and can't do, and you see him every single day. So you kind of have a better handle about what this individual could physically do than some other folks might. And your assessment, again, Claire, you talked about it, Having that ability to make a professional assessment, knowing that your voice is going to be heard, I would communicate with the case manager and the social worker and write a note to his physician saying, I'm his care provider and this is what I see. Can we work on this? Claire, we have we have a few, like 20, 30 seconds left for, for you to tell us. I mean, not that you have to summarize in 20 seconds, but what do you think is the most important first step someone could take today if they or a loved one are on pain medicine and there's a question about it? My first thoughts for anyone who's going to be on pain medication is to develop that relationship with your primary doctor or nurse practitioner, your provider. See if you need a pain management team involved. Um, and be willing to go. Be willing to go. Be, be part of your care. Be the decision maker of your care. It's your body. You own it. You make the decisions about it. And you get to work with this whole team of professionals who have the information you need to make your decisions. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to have to do this again, Claire, because we didn't get through a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about. And we will. You can click on the podcast if you want to hear this again, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're going to visit this one again. We'll see you next week for a new topic Monday on The Body Show.